Hello and welcome to Office Hours, a podcast about campus politics in the end times. We're your hosts, Laura and David. Today's episode is a faculty lounge episode, so it's just David and I, where we're checking in on some current news in higher ed politics. We'll be discussing the upcoming faculty strike in the Cal State system and Palestine faculty and staff organizing. So, David, I wanted to start by asking you to give our listeners an overview of what's going on um, in the Cal State University CSU system and um, why faculty and staff there are planning on or I guess, is it faculty and staff? Some, it's, some it's, staff? Yeah, it's, just, it's mostly faculty, but there okay. are, yeah, there are a few different categories there that might kind of colloquially fall into staff. Yeah. Okay. So uh, why they're planning on striking? Can you just give a concise overview there? Yeah. So we're, rec- we're, we're recording this on a Friday, January 19th. Monday looks to be the beginning of, of a massive strike in the, the Cal State system. This is one of the largest systems of public higher ed in the country and uh, would be you know close to 30,000 workers going out on strike. Um, they began uh, like a contract bargaining opener. So this is one of those things where like it's not the full end of a contract, but certain things open up. And I think it opened up last year and uh, they have been bargaining for several months and just uh, at an impasse. The, their demands uh, really center around a 12% salary increase, but also include you know some things that we might call bargaining for the common good, which have been very important uh, uh, for this like latest wave of teacher strikes. Um, they are looking to increase the resources for counseling, so decrease the amount of students per counselor. Those are a big part of their demand. And to give a, people a sense of the timeline here, there a few of the campuses, so this is a system that has multiple campuses, and three or four of them did a kind of one-day strike in the late fall semester. And their bargaining had continued and then hit a real impasse uh, in, I think, early January. And at that point, the admin uh, kind of basically offered their last best offer type thing, saying a 5% increase was the best that they could do. There was, uh, it did reach the level of impasse where it went to a kind of mediator. Sometimes I, I get the language here. Uh, messed up. I'm not sure the status of that individual, but an individual who takes a look at both sides and kind of does a fact finding. Um, That person suggested a 7% increase. So higher than what the admin offered, um, but less than what the the union was looking for. But the the administration essentially is holding firm on their 5% raise and have, have walked away from the table essentially. So Monday begins, you know, barring some changes, Monday begins a big strike across all the state of California, the Cal State system. This is sort of the people's system. You know, we often hear Mm -hmm. mostly about the UCs, Berkeley, UCLA, and so forth. Um, Those are kind of the elite level of the public system, though, of course, super important. Cal State, this is the system that serves the like you know the working families of California and obviously any other state when you go. Yeah, just to real quick explain to listeners, there's a three-tier public higher ed system in California with the UCs being at the top 
to you know kind of considered the el most elite kind of research institutions than the CSUs, which are like the equivalent of, you know, state university, like, um, well, I guess I'm not sure how it works in all different states, but in Washington, we have, you know, Washington State University. And then there's the community college system, which is the, um, you know, I mean, obviously, these are ranked hierarchically, because it's fucked up like that. But um, the CSUs are kind of the middle tier. Yeah. And I think it's just a good reminder that like, Again, you know, our society is just going to obsess and obsess, obsess about Harvard and Yale and, you know, all this stuff that we just saw, all these congressional hearings about these elite universities and people are going to bemoan how difficult it is to get into UC Berkeley and UCLA. But the bulk of what goes on is happening at those two other mm -hmm. tiers that you're that you're yes. talking about. And, you know, uh, there's a couple of pieces of this that I think I want to highlight first is the system just voted in fall to increase tuition 5% a year over five, over five, sorry, 6% a year over five years. I think in the end, at the end of five years, it'll be a 34% increase in tuition. And that went through. Really? Yeah. Yeah. And so 6% a year each year, each for year, five years. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And when you look at the the cost of tuition at these institutions, again, going back to the, their importance for working families, they are quite low in the grand scheme of higher ed. That doesn't mean it's accessible. It doesn't mean cost isn't a barrier. But this is the bread and butter, like where people who are working and people who don't have intergenerational wealth are able to go. And, you know, these cost increases for students are going to be a big deal, you know, th a third increase at the end of five years. So while right, that, because, sorry, David, yeah, go ahead. the um the CSU administration is claiming they have this big budget deficit, right? Yeah, and this is where you're going to get into the finances. I know. Yeah, and but but also this is also just where like I think that that admin just present this like us. I think that they, they live in do, they yeah. live with austerity brain, like this austerity mindset, mm -hmm. and they kind of force it upon everybody else, even if it's not accurate. I th that's also the kind of the, the big story here that mm -hmm. the just emphasis, like we're broke, we're broke, we don't have money, the enrollment is going to drop, it, the, like the sky is falling. Yeah, the panic, this, yeah. this like panic um, scenario. The panic scenario. Well, so before turning it back to you, I just wanted to say, so the, yeah, there's that tuition hike coming. Uh, it's already been approved. So the, and there was some opposition to it, but it has been approved. So that's coming. And then the other piece of it that I just wanted our listeners to be aware of is that this is a contingent faculty story. This union story going out on strike calling for this 12% increase really does, I think, have to do with the way that this is a large public system that has for quite a while now overly relied on contingent faculty. And, you know, just to remind everybody, I don't think anyone who's our listener necessarily needs to be reminded, but this is, these are workers in the CSU system. They often use the language lecturers. They may be hired initially just for like a course, um, but then at a certain point, they may have year-long contracts, potentially up to three-year-long three contracts. But these are like the lowest paid faculty. And, you know, these are individuals with PhDs, multiple years of teaching, who don't necessarily know what their future holds, if they're going to get their courses, if they're going to get a renewed contract. And they're making in the like low to mid-60s 
and having to supplement their income doing other work and working at other institutions as well. And I so and I'm bringing this up because I saw I think it might have been in a Guardian article. I saw um, the use of an average salary across the whole system. And it was really deceptive because those who are on the tenure Orally. line do actually make above 100K. But the bulk of the teaching is being done by individuals who are you know, highly talented, highly credentialed and making like 65 grand. So they're trying to lift up that low end of the salary for lecturers. And it's just, you know, you're living in California. You can't afford to live in California on a low salary. And, you know, so that's a, that's a big part of it. I don't know. What have what have you been seeing and thinking about with the strike? Well, I just wanted to add a little bit on the demands because I think some of them are, are interesting. And yeah, thank you for going into more detail about the um, just the background for the um, the wage increases that they're asking for. I wanted to just read a little bit. So this is the California Faculty Association. I wanted to read a little bit from their um, their public statement and their strike FAQs on their website, just where they talk a little bit about the, I guess, you know, what often gets called non-economic demands, even though I think we understand them to also have an economic dimension. So they're fighting for an extension of parental leave, I believe from one month to one semester. They're also fighting for um, better um, safe, like gender inclusive restroom facilities, more extensive, as well as better lactation spaces for nursing parents, um, which I think are interesting and, and important things to demand. And the other one I wanted to draw attention to is, you know, they say in their statement that, and this is the first time I've seen this, except for once in passing, I think, David, we had, well, well, okay, let, let me just say, I, I don't think it's actually not the first time, but let me just say, which they, they talk about um, safety on campus, and they specifically are trying to address cops on campus within their contract struggle. So something they say here, uh, we want to improve campus safety and community well-being, particularly for marginalized faculty, students, and staff by limiting the imposition of police power, which includes ending the practice of dispatching police on faculty unless required by law, um, as well as to provide CSU employees with the opportunity for union representation or legal counsel when being interviewed by campus police and the dignity of being interviewed in a private location with officers who are unarmed. And um, I don't have this part in my notes, but I actually looked at the language of their proposal, and there's a bit more, too, that they have in there around just trying to limit the um, use of police to deal with, you know, mental health crises and also creating a joint um, faculty and management committee, I guess, that would discuss basically the use of alternatives to police on campus. So, um, you know, as like, if we have any devoted listeners who yeah. all of our episodes, as they know, this is something that we've talked about before. It came up a lot when we interviewed um, Maga, uh, um, who is a, a UCLA graduate student in talking about the demands that the UAW grad students, the sort of, you know, one of the contingents within that strike 
was pushing for that unfortunately the union leadership really didn't fight for. And, you know, I'd love to know more about like the internal politics here with the the CFA, but it, it's look it looks at least on paper based on the demands um, that they are pushing for something a little bit more radical that, you know, we would consider to be taking a much broader and more inclusive view of what a union should be fighting for. Um, you know, it's framed in the language of kind of working conditions and safety for its members. It would be interesting to see if they try to do extend it more to also include students, you know, student well-being and how far can you push? I don't know. I'd be interested in that. How far can the union push to try to advocate for people who aren't directly their union members, but who are, you know, part of the campus community? I don't know. Um, so, yeah, I just wanted to call attention to that. What do you what do you think about well, that? Well, I'm so glad that you called attention to it, you know, because mm. this is a classic example of like all the media attention on it that I've been reading has been mm. focusing in on the right, the the pay increase, the that part of it and that. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the cops off campus movement is such an important movement um, and extending the features of the 2020 uprisings and mm -hmm. those demands into you know higher ed but also into labor politics is such an important piece and the success of that like a lot of the work that we did uh you know in learning from maga and others about the uc strike was a bit of a story of it getting pushed but not necessarily pursued so seeing some of these things and following them and seeing where they come from and where they go i think is an important really important thing to to monitor so, I was so i'm so glad that you brought it up um you know some of these campuses are also massive uh you know these are some of these campuses have like thirty thousand people right and so they uh have a large geographic footprint in their cities and campus police forces are likely to be not only influencing and impacting the lives of faculty staff and students but probably also those who are not that's a really uh, good right? point and, as well yeah. and you know and policing those boundaries and, and so forth right and so you start to for some of these large campuses you start to bring in the question of yeah th this type of demand what this type of demand means for also people who don't like live on campus work on campus or go to school as well so yeah, that's a really good point. I mean, here in, in Philadelphia, you know, I live not that far from UPenn and the UPenn police, it's, you know, it's this Ivy League campus in the middle of, you know, downtown Philadelphia. And so they're really known for, you know, a lot of what they're doing is just trying to keep people out of the campus, you know, trying to preserve it as this like little, you know, little ivory tower haven um, that where people can walk around and feel like they're like at Cambridge or something like that, um, which involves a lot of just actually policing the perimeters, pr policing people who are not part of the Penn community. So that's that's a an important point. Yeah. The other yeah. thing I just wanted. Sorry, go ahead. Well, I was, and I don't want to. I don't have any insider information here, but just the basic trend too is that labor has not always been conducive to these kinds of demands that are maybe coming from social movements. And yeah, uh, it's just very intriguing to watch and see what happens. Intriguing is probably the wrong word, because mostly it's like, 
I would like to see labor politics in higher ed become much more integrated with the social movement demands overall. And that that fusion, whatever we might call it, but that fusion politics as potentially something very transformative, which coming out of UC, which also before I forget, I just want to say too, that like, I'm also excited to see the CSU faculty doing this because it's just keeping the wave going, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. the UC grad students, Rutgers, adjuncts at the new school, Temple, you know, UIC faculty in Chicago, whatever it is, I may be missing a few, but we're we're in a wave. And as we know, waves, you know, rest and fall and keeping things alive is a part of labor politics and higher ed too. And so, you know, I'm, I'm excited to see someone taking the baton. Totally. Yeah. And it would be really cool to have a little bit more insider intel on just you know, what the internal dynamics have been like. So we're, we're basically purely going off of news articles and information online. Um, I wanted to just ask you briefly, David, because I saw, I think maybe in The Guardian, or maybe it was SFGate, that the Teamsters are also striking alongside the, um, the CSU faculty, the local 2010. Do you know anything about that I just know whatever you read. I I read it too, but I, d- I didn't have anything extra to add about it. Okay, yeah. Skill the Jason Rabinowitz, the secretary treasurer, said skilled workers had been paid far less than workers in similar roles at University of California campuses. So that's what I have about that. Yeah, and I guess that will be something to monitor in terms of worker solidarity across categories you know yeah that's something that i'm I'm always worried about too with our faculty doing a a good enough job collaborating with the other unions and the other worker categories on campus yeah Um, so yeah definitely something to watch okay so this strike is starting on monday well by the time this recording comes out it'll be ongoing and it's set to be just for a week right it's not an open-ended strike is that correct? yeah as at the moment it's set to be like the first week of classes mm-hmm. i don't know if they're if they're anticipating that that'll provide the leverage i think just speaking historically that's probably not going to provide no. the leverage Mm-mm. um so this may be one of those dynamics where it's going to be a tussle or some sort of struggle between those who want to generalize it and and expand versus those who kind of see it as, as sufficient to do the one week. Um, yeah, that's a really great point. Yeah. And, you know, that kind of I'm, I'm kind of drawing that just based on the UC experience of like there were these sort of, in, in, you know, internal fights of like this has to expand. It has to include the real sources of leverage, which, of course, we know, yeah, the beginning of the quarter or the beginning of the semester can be a point of leverage. But um, really, it's towards the end and grades. And that's a big part of what where faculty have the most leverage and is in grades. So, mm-hmm. you know. yeah. This is the beginning of the spring semester, uh, so I don't know how much they'll be able to extract. But I guess some of it also depends on the court of public opinion, how big of... Again, th- to me, this is... I just found out about it. I mean, I, I th- maybe I haven't been paying attention as much, but this is a big deal. It's a huge institution. Yeah, it should be getting more coverage. And I think you're probably right that it's not getting as much because it's not the UCs. 
Well, David, can you um can you take us into so the the CSU administration is basically countering by saying that there's a budget deficit that they can't afford to pay faculty um, this twelve percent increase. Now, I know you did some you know some digging into the finances. Can you tell us a little bit about what's really going on here? Yeah, so the CFA, the union that is going to be going out on strike, they uh, are they they worked with an individual to analyze the the system's finances. Howard Bunsis is his name, and he put together a presentation. So I, I I watched the presentation, and it's it basically made me so angry to watch. I mean, and so just I'm just going to give a couple of highlights. And my understanding is that he just used um, available financial information that, you know, as a public institution is out there. His big picture conclusion, the, the system is flush with cash and has plenty of money to meet the demand, uh, the 12% demand. Now, of course, some of those other things that you mentioned, quote unquote, non-economic, don't have a very big price tag on them. So those would also be doable. Some of them involve, you know, restructuring how, you know, how you do family leave. Some of them involve like, you know, conflict with the campus police forces. So that doesn't make them easy, but they don't have a big price tag. The big price tag is the 12% compared to the 5% increase that the admin were offering. So to give you just a sense of the big picture, they have six... billion in unrestricted reserves. And this number has been going up. So he analyzed like largely from 2006 to 2022. And that's unrestricted reserves. Total net assets of 13.7 billion up from 6.3 billion in 2006. With the financial picture in 2022 being the, the system's best year overall. So the thing that he was sort of arguing too is just you don't have to even touch any of those things to meet the the cost that is being demanded. So uh, I guess what they're saying is that 12% to meet that 12% involves 232 million more than what the college is offering. So it's not the total, but it's the college is offering the 5% to get from five up to 12 would be 232 million. Of course, that would be, you know, each year. That's such a drop in the bucket. It's it's so small. And what he shows is just every single year since 2006, except one. So every single year since 2006, the, the system has generated more cash. So what we might just call profit, obviously, these are public institutions, so you don't necessarily call them profit, but just every year since 2006, the system has had a surplus bigger than the 232 million each year. So by any sort of passes, prologue, whatever, any metric that you're using, the expectation should be pretty clear because you're not even getting into the reserves that you can meet this money. And he said something that I think is super important, which is just the reason why they have this extra money is because faculty have been so underpaid. That's it, right? Like this is the whole picture. When you have contingent faculty who are squeezed and squeezed and squeezed and squeezed and squeezed, and you're raising tuition, you can sort of generate this picture where it's it's you know the financial side of things is actually quite healthy. 
more than healthy, really. It's it's fantastic. And at the same time, the admin are basically sort of claiming that there's the sky is falling. So this is, I think, a justice issue, not only in terms of like to what do people deserve, but more just like the people who produced that surplus, right? They're now asking for, you know, to to get, you know, to get fulfilled, to get what they deserve. So some other things, some of these things are just a little bit like he he looked at like during the pandemic phase, like what major changes in um in costs per type of of like uh, employee administration. The the biggest expense change has been an increase, two hundred million increase in admin during that period. Now, classic. Yeah, yeah, it's classic. And of course, it's like the the admin numbers are not by themselves going to just make up faculty salaries, but just in terms of what we understand, the major trends are the same time period and this was looking at like again covid period 2019 to 2022 the same time period negative 37 million on the instruction side so admin have increased their amount by 200 million in the like the three-year covid period while instruction went down 37 million these this is just the kind of absurd picture and he used a lot of financial information from the bond rating agencies, from Moody's, and you know they they give the the system a, an excellent credit score, not you know not AAA, but very high. The picture looks good is is the main message. And so I think that we have to just contend with the fact that our society, the people who lead in higher ed are willing to basically have completely healthy system, but try to convince us that the sky is falling and just continue to push and push and push and push and push. And like, what will change that? I mean, that's where I think students, labor and community, it's like, we need, we need the movement that will change this. I don't know. What do you think? Yeah, I was actually just thinking about how similar this sounds to just the student movement when I was a graduate student at UC Santa Cruz, you know, now 15 years ago or something like that. Um, We've talked about it before also on this podcast, but, you know, we were also faced with a, I think it was 33 or so percent tuition hike. Well, you know, they technically they call them fees, but tuition hike in the UC system. And this was when Schwarzenegger was governor. And it really launched a student movement, you know, and that was successful. You know, they they froze the the fees. They didn't raise them. So I am curious um, that, you know, that if the and in that case, the faculty unions were not incredibly active. So I am curious if there's going to be like a corresponding stu- student movement. Um, and if so, if we can have more solidarity between faculty, staff, and students, um, and the larger community, you know, connecting all of these issues together, um, that that would be the ideal. That would be really powerful to see. I don't know um, too much about, you know, if, if anything's been going on. It sounds like it's pretty recent that they declared that tuition increase plan. When did you say that was, David? That was in fall. So I think it was, I think the big vote around it was in september so okay. pretty recent right and and there are so some... you know i'd really like i'd like to think that cfa is reaching out to students and trying to build um you know build a coalition there um i think that's what they need they need to do if they want to succeed so yeah well we'll be monitoring and uh yeah we should uh hopefully have somebody on maybe a faculty member or 
union yeah. organizer. Or... If any of our listeners are uh, participating in the strike, we would love to hear from you. You can reach out to us via Twitter or Instagram. Yeah. We'll we'll put our handles in the show notes as we always do. So um, let's let's segue into just uh, check in on what's been happening on campuses or just in higher ed regarding Palestine, Palestinian solidarity. Did you have anything that you wanted to to touch on, Laura? Yeah, just just briefly. I mean, there's definitely a lot that we could say. I was just looking into kind of one thing, and I know you had one thing you wanted to bring up as well. Um, I mean, I guess I just you know want to start first of all by like acknowledging that it's been you know when we when we did our first episode on um, campus organizing on Palestine, I think it was you know maybe early November. You know, it's been three months now of um, this genocidal campaign uh, in in Gaza. I want to just you know note that I'm I'm just like horrified and devastated that this is continuing to happen. I'm I'm heartbroken that we haven't been able to stop it yet, and I'm trying to you know not go into that place of numbness and hopelessness and just continue to. Um, try to organize because I think it's all that we can do. It fe- it's, it's feeling kind of hard, you know, and I feel like um, also just with the rhythms of the, you know, the the semesters and winter break, it's feeling very unactive on my campus right now. And, and like we were kind of starting to form um, a pretty, a pretty active group. And now it's feeling like it's really hard to get anyone to come to a meeting. I'm, I'm hoping that's going to pick up, but I'm just, I guess I'm just noting that, you know, it's hard when it's going on into the, you know, month three, month four of just watching just the most horrifying things, images and, and, accounts I've ever seen to like really know what to do to feel like we're um, making an impact. And, you know, I, I, I've been thinking about what it must have been like to, you know, fight against the Vietnam War and how it took 10 years of, you know, of organizing. And obviously, I mean, I don't want to over, like, I don't want to overemphasize the role of U.S. organizers because it's an international movement and like in the case of the Vietnam War obviously the Vietnamese people had uh you know a, the the major role to play so I don't want to like you know put too much power in the hands of American activists but just particularly feeling like our country well knowing that our country is funding this genocide it's it's hard to feel like I, I think what we're doing is making some impact, but it's not, it hasn't been successful in stopping the killing. So I, I feel kind of heavy from that. I don't know where you're, where you're at, David. Same, same, you know, yeah. I mean, it's like, I think you make a really good point. Like it's the Palestinian youth movement here. That's really leading and they're, you know, and, and doing work for years and years and years. And also on the like Jewish voices for peace side, building, building a solidarity movement over years and years and years. And it's been wonderful to see the, what that movement has been able to produce and, you know, direct actions are still happening. Um, You know, things that are disruptive are still happening, but I, I feel the same way where it's just, it's hard to 
trying to grapple with just the scale of the violence and the human suffering and the complicity of our country in it alongside the the developments and you know you know I've been monitoring this the situation with South Africa, bringing the case to try to, you know, sort of obviously push the world community to, you know, kind of put a kind of injunction on this. Um, and, and also making the claim that being a part of the genocide convention requires uh, a kind of diligence, even in if there's simply a risk of genocide occurring that you have to act. And, you know, it's just, it, it is a lot um, I mean, just to speak personally, I've been grappling with having a six-year-old and things like birthdays have been happening during times where there's actions and marches and struggling with just the, like, the what do you do um, to act uh, in solidarity and ethically in the long run with others to achieve a better world. It, it, it's, you know, I'm I'm right there with you. Yeah. Well, I guess um, what I what I had for today was just wanting to call attention to um, just the growing, I guess, emergence of Faculty for Justice in Palestine as an organization with chapters around the country. And in some places, it looks like they're calling themselves faculty and staff for justice in Palestine. You know, this group kind of formed in the fall, but it looks and 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 then, you know, a chapters on different campuses have been kind of coalescing and putting forward statements. It seems like there's been a push in the last week. I'm seeing there's, you know, new chapters formed at at Penn, at Harvard, and um, at uh, Columbia. That at least they've released statements kind of announcing their formation and just stating their solidarity with Students for Justice in Palestine and also their basically focusing on it looks like they're focusing on a bunch of different things but in addition to defending student organizing um, to promoting the uh, academic boycott of Israel um, as part of BDS and also defending you know faculty and staff's um, ability to speak openly in support of Palestine and criticize Israel without you know, uh, facing repercussions from administration or the broader community without protection, right? So um, it's it's good to see that happening. Um, I guess I I just talk briefly about Penn because um, even though you know it is an elite college and we've kind of been trying to not solely focus on that, Penn has had like a particularly gnarly um, history since well since before October 7th in terms of its dealing with pro-Palestine speech and protest um, and just academic and intellectual discussion you know so we've I think we might have covered this a little bit more in our previous faculty lounge but I was just looking at an article that's actually from late November which was the uh, the reason I was looking at it was because the Penn Faculty for Justice in Palestine statement specifically linking to it to talk about this incident that occurred, you know, there's this documentary film that's been making the rounds of a lot of colleges called Israelism. Israelism, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it was screened at Rutgers also um, late last quarter. And obviously, you know, there's been a lot of kind of pushback 
from pro-Israel groups um, on campus and in the community because it specifically um, tells the story of two American Jews, two young American Jews who were raised, you know, within Zionist families and communities. Um, and then as young people, they travel to the West Bank and they they witness the way that Israel treats Palestinians. So it kind of takes you through this journey and change in consciousness. Um, it's won a bunch of awards, but obviously um, has faced criticism for being, you know, for basically telling the truth. And so you know, I, I don't, just can I just jump in for a second? Like not yeah. only telling the truth, but just telling it in a deeply human and personal kind of way. Like there's nothing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I don't know. We, it doesn't, you don't, no one has to communicate this way, but in terms of like a unassailable media making, this is just a, a documentary that looks very closely at two people's lives. You know, it's just, it's not, mm -hmm. Yeah, I just feel like it's very indicative when something like this is being censored and being targeted. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, totally. Anyway, the Middle East Center um, screened the they had actually been trying to screen the documentary before October 7th, but ended up doing it, um, I guess, in November. And there was so much pressure from administration that the director of the Middle East Center resigned before the film was even shown. I'm looking at a Philadelphia Inquirer article, which is definitely could go harder, but is more um, um, kind of critical of the administration than I think I would have expected or or than they were kind of in the in the beginning of the fall. So I've, I've actually seen their like editorial line shift a little bit. Um, yeah, the quote from the director just says, I'm all out of comments, <laughs> he said, declining to elaborate. So yeah, the AAUP pen chapter put out an urgent message saying he resigned in response to pressure from administrators who were basically telling the center to cancel the screening. And now, um, and now apparently, it doesn't really go into a lot of detail about this, but the students who screened the uh, event are potentially facing disciplinary measures. So this is something that, you know, is um, being talked about by by the Faculty for Justice and Power. And another thing mm -hmm. with the UPenn too is this, you know, they, they've been having issues all the way back into the summer where there was this Palestine Rights Literary Festival. Oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that um, where they invited speakers who, you know, were quote unquote, anti had made anti-Semitic comments, which if you actually look at them very clearly, you know, anti-Zionist comments critical of Israel's treatment of Palestinians. So, you know, going back into the summer, there there was already this, um, you know, uh, administrative policy that was coming down really hard on pro-Palestine organizing. And as we've mentioned on this podcast, the president of UPenn resigned as a basically as a result of that. And then her like not like kissing the feet enough of these, you know, pro-Israel um, donors who are, you know, basically telling her, like, you didn't condemn the Palestine, um, pro-Palestine stuff fast enough or, you know, with enough aggression, you know, so she, she was part of a, this, like, wave of um, presidents who resigned, Liz, Liz McGill, I think is her name. Anyway, so I just wanted to share that to to just talk about a, a university that I think is 
facing, you know, dealing with like a particularly intense case of um, just administrative aggression. Um, but obviously this is happening all over the country. Yeah. yeah. And it, it, it also highlights the kinds of things that campus chapters of this org is this is this faculty for justice in Palestine? Is that what they're? Yeah, calling this themselves? is the Penn chapter. I guess they're calling yeah. themselves Penn faculty for justice in Palestine. I, I'm not sure how autonomously each of these chapters are organizing. But it does highlight the kinds of struggles that they can intervene in and potentially win certain things, because some of the stuff that is going on you know, outside of the criticism of like pro student protests, but like just day to day things that faculty and students work together to accomplish during a war is holding speakers who come to talk about the issue, uh, having documentaries followed by Q&A sessions, right? This this is sort of the, the day-to-day work of our lives on these campuses is like, oh, there's something happening and now we're not we're not going to just put our head down, we're going to address it and have a panel. And, you know, there was a version of this, I don't have the details in front of me, but there was a version of this in Indiana, where a tenured faculty member uh, has been disciplined because he had worked with the students to host a panel. And there was like, the proposal for the room was rejected. And then like, they held the panel. Anyway, I, I wish I had came with the details. But again, this kind of stuff is what you know a chapter based org could potentially be be doing protecting people when they get these kinds of disciplinary actions and stuff i mean i would definitely hope a, a campus union would also come to people's aid but not every campus not every faculty has a union so i wanted to also just to highlight another story that i'm monitoring and this one is at indiana university yeah. and it is the uh, palestinian artist uh, samia halabi and she is an abstract artist. I didn't know her work uh, until um, this story broke. And I'm very intrigued to to learn more about her work. But the basic... Well, let's post a link to her work. Yeah, yeah. And the basic um, outline of the story is that she, her family moved uh, to the U.S. in the 50s. She got a master's in art from Indiana and then later became a tenured prof there. So this is her returning to, uh, you know, home in a sense, her second home for a, you know, comprehensive lifetime retrospective exhibit. Um, so it's monumental in a few different ways of like, you know, there aren't a lot of retrospectives of Palestinian American artists, you know, um, yesterday Democracy Now! covered it and, she, you know, she was talking about the importance of this for the cu the curator who put this all together. So something that has taken three years to put together you know you're sending artworks all around the country you have agreements with different museums to loan the pieces and um basically she received uh just a blunt cancellation of the whole exhibit with no information regarding why at all and you know the speculation is that it's because she's been uh proactive on social media in support of Palestinian people, critical of Israel's, you know, military policies, just, and I, I don't know specifically what she has been saying on social media, but either way, she, this whole, the whole show was canceled. Faculty did push back. And th through that, it, what, what appears is going on is that a, an administrator said to faculty, that the reason why they canceled the show was safety. So this was 
not offered to her in the cancellation. And so, you know, there, it isn't clear if this is just a, a rationale after the fact, but of course it's just, it's absurd anyway. So the basic message from the admin to a group of faculty demanding that it be reinstated was we would have had to have extra security at the show and it was potentially too inflammatory. And so this is, you know, this is really just speaks bullshit. to the overall it's the exactly bullshit is the perfect way to to respond to it it's a version of what you're describing with the cancellation of israelism but but even bigger in terms of the preparations to do this you know like not that it matters at all but like all kinds of people are involved in putting together something of this scale and mm. you're just going to drop it and i don't know i've just been you know how things just hit you differently to me? Like, just this has hit me particularly hard because it's just like, it's art. It is like somebody who put in their time at this institution. Like, mm. this is devastating to her. It's devastating to a lot of people, of course. And of course, to Palestinian people. But like, this is just like, she was a tenured prof there. Like, yeah, it is out of control. It is out of control. And of course, we understand why these things are happening, which is just there is it's the Palestinian exception for free speech. It's the notion that in order to continue this genocidal campaign, you you have to prevent people from seeing the most basic features of Palestinian lives and Palestinian expression and Palestine, you know, the vibrancy of That's the, such a good point. Yeah. You know, it's like just even anything that, you know, um, human suggests that there's, you know, human experience that that kind of like chips at this the dehumanization of Palestinian people, you know, this kind of way that they're just being reduced to like, like ter little like sort of baby, like a baby is like a little baby terrorist or whatever. Anything that just shows the the existence of culture community um you know institutions love friendships relationships is a threat to the ability to continue you know that that war that you know violence and yeah that's that's really true david yeah and i think like something like can israelism is a much more direct um what's the word i'm thinking of here like it is offering a direct criticism of occupation apartheid and genocidal circumstances and it is looking specifically at socialization of american jews um, and their participation in the israel uh israeli defense forces samia halvey's work touches on these things but she's an abstract painter and sculptor like the works are not flattery they're non-representational there's no like thesis on the wall that says yeah. like end apartheid now i think outwardly in her communications on social media that's who she is but i'm just saying like the wall that you're looking at is not saying a specific claim you know and again that doesn't change like if it was i think it should still happen especially of course. Know, of course, of course, of course. Yeah. But it says but. something that it's not even the content of the work. It's that, first of all, it's just that the human being that made it is Palestinian, but also that she has, you know, views on an issue that she in other venues is communicating. 
Yeah, and I do want to. I uh, Democracy Now's coverage of it was really good, and I want to just point people to one part that I particularly loved. She talked about being a young art student in the U.S. in the '70s and being like, my professors were all pushing us to be critical and to be proactive, like artists out in the world and like not accepting conventional wisdom. And just she was talking about a kind of maybe, you know, idealized version of what we think of as education. But for her, it was very right formative to have art professors who were doing the kinds of things that are, you know, people are being prevented from doing today, right? Like having to censor their work, censor themselves, censor the kinds of events mm -hmm. that they have on campus. So yeah, it was a part that kind of stuck with me. So yeah, check out yesterday's Democracy Now! That would be Thursday, January 18th. Yeah, we can put a link to that in the show notes as well. Well, I think that's all that we have for today, right? Unless there's anything else? No, I think that's it. Well, um, thank you to our listeners. And, um, you know, we've been on a little bit of a hiatus over the winter break, but we're excited to get back into the routine of it now that the, our semesters and quarters are up and running. We're back from our, our holidays um, and we'll look forward to uh, our next episode where we'll be doing a, a really cool interview. So till then, bye. Our theme music is by Nigel Weiss. Our artwork is by Arthur Kay. You can find more of their artwork at rotradio.tumblr.com. We would love it if you subscribe to our podcast and tell your friends about us. Rate and review us on all the major platforms. Thanks for listening. Bye.